Welcome to the Flamin Connect podcast, a podcast focused on the individual pieces that make up the larger community of people together doing what's right and making a difference. Today's hosts, we have myself, Trevor Grindy, Regan Kuntz, and Mitch Flamin. You know, it's I, I find that my musical tastes I've kind of turned into my father. Like I have Sirius <laughs> Radio, and it's on Prime Country yeah. probably seventy percent of the time. But be like that. Okay, I don't care what genre of music you listen to, but or because I'm all over the map, I'll listen to absolutely everything. But '90s country was a time to be alive. Like that's when I think. Yeah. Before that, I'm not saying like country music wasn't good it was just different but there was something about 90s country that that brought it into like pop culture when you started getting your garth brooks and shania twain's and you're like i'll narrow it down i i think 85 through 95 that is the window yeah it started yeah so the later part of the 90s it started getting too uh poppy yes exactly yeah when you started getting into ones like uh, Big and Rich and Gretchen Wilson, where they yeah. they just pushed it That's, to way me, out of country, yep. I felt. Yeah. And it wasn't really country anymore. I've, I actually feel like, and for the last, I don't know, five years or so now, because I'd still say country music is probably my most listened to genre outside of new stock yeah. radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, for the last like five years or more, I feel like music, like country music's just been awful. And it's all just bro country stuff that i just i don't whatever it is what it is it's what's mainstream now but i feel like it's finally coming back like it's finally five years ago some of these guys were out there but they finally just like started making another name again <laughs> like and it's getting back to what country music was about and yeah. when it wasn't about mainstream stuff my uh 13 year old still tell uh, tells me when we're riding in the trucks why is every country song either about drinking or losing a loved one <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, that's the litmus test. Pretty much every song is about well, you can add tr- you can add trucks in there too. Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. But it's neat now to like hear songs that have nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. Like, there's you should look this up. There's a guy named Nate Smith. He's and he's got a funny story too. Telling a sec, his house burned. He went to Nashville and wasn't very good. So he's a country singer and went to Nashville and got sent home. He's from California, I think. His house burnt down. And then so he wrote a song like about his house burning down and it went massive on TikTok. And now he's back in Nashville. <laughs> but he's got a song called Raised Up. And you should listen to it because it's not about it's about music. It's about like how he was raised, but then he takes all the music that he listened to when he was raised and he turns it up. It's a super neat play on words and it has nothing to do with trucks and it has nothing to do with like a relationship like it's just it's a cool song yeah. and luke combs is another guy that yeah. i think like i think he writes most of his stuff too yep. super talented guy and super he dabbles on the line of like some mainstream things i think maybe because you have to but he's so talented and he sings songs about all sorts of stuff that are not typical but country songs. but it's rural stuff right like, yes yeah. yes there's a tie yeah. into country there yes. right yeah. Um, Chris Stapleton is another like we talked about him, fantastic musician, right? Really good songwriter. Tyler Childers is another yeah. one. Coulter Wall, yeah. Like there is some more of a I'll call it outlaw country that yeah. I kind of lean towards. You know, if you're watching um, Yellowstone, and stuff you probably like that. yeah exactly. Yeah. You probably lean to it more now because <laughs> a Yellowstone, but B because it's original. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. So uh, the, the original question was, would you go, would you pay $150, and I don't, I haven't even looked at the ticket prices, so I assume it's in that range, to go see Kiss? I would, absolutely. Because I don't think you're going to get another, if you haven't especially, I don't think you're going to get another chance to do it, or not many more. The only thing that's going to suck is, uh, like, I've seen Motley Crue yeah. lots. Yeah. And it's always their last <laughs> concert that you yeah. go see. And it, Vince Neil is, like, just getting worse and worse and worse it's like it's almost awful to go watch but you still end up having a good time but the yeah. talent of the concert isn't there and the tickets are still typically expensive so pop quiz pop quiz, pop quiz. a barn was built in 1915 that was said to be the largest in north america near which present day community was it located mccreary manitoba leader saskatchewan Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Cochrane, Alberta. Lacombe, Alberta. Cochrane, Alberta, final answer. He sounds extremely confident. I'm not. <laughs> Just, uh, I've driven through most of those other towns <laughs> and haven't seen the biggest barn. So I'll, I'll, I'll take the Saskatchewan option and go leader, but I have absolutely no idea. There's there's two Saskatchewan options. There was leader oh, and Moose Jaw. But sorry, I'll take, I'll take leader. So leader? Okay, so it was built by the Smith family. Mm-hmm. And it was built near the South Saskatchewan River, okay, just west of Leader. There you well go. Well done. Boom. Yeah. Just west of Leader. So it was built by William T. Horseshoe Smith. The barn was 400 feet long, 128 feet wide. It took a crew of 100 men five months to complete the project. <laughs> Holy moly. I, is it still standing today? Only the foundation remains. Mm. Yep. A lot of barns burnt down due to electrical issues and hay in there and like a lot. Like I, That's my first, talk about core memories. Yeah. It's one of my first memories of being on the farm. I must have been four or five years old watching the barn burn down. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> was the only one in the yard at that time that thought it was the coolest thing ever. And the ones that lasted any amount of time started to get a bit of a lean on them after a while. And then... So, fun fact, at the original... Flamin Sales site in Southeast Saskatchewan, where I grew up, there was, well, there was an old brick house that my grandpa and like, so my dad and, and all his siblings grew up in. And then they added a office onto the side of that, like just a little, just a little addition onto the side of the house. And there was a big red barn in the middle of the yard because like it was grandpa's farm. And in the hayloft of that barn is where we kept a bunch of, uh, like air seeder hose and stuff like that. And they had my brother and I convinced that they were big snakes. Like there was big like <laughs> anaconda snakes up there for like a big part of our childhood so that we wouldn't go in the hayloft. How long did that that barn last? And we tore it, it down in 1997 oh, yeah. when we built the exist the current Flamin Sales dealership there right now. So that's where it was, right there? It was right there. Oh, we, yeah. yeah, we ripped it down. And then where that office sits yeah. is where... Actually, if you go on... Probably if you go on the Flamin homepage, there's a picture. Uh, it's in the video. It's the video that rolls up. And the very first few seconds of that, there's a old farmyard. Like, it's a black and white photo. And then it, uh, it morphs into, like, the existing one. And I bet if you look close... There's like a barn in there, and then it's now the the building. That's the barn with the big anacondas in it. 
did they flush the snakes out before <laughs> yeah. the barn went down? You know, I wonder. Okay, pop quiz. Which prairie community is considered the home of Canadian 4-H? Roblin, Manitoba. Roland, Manitoba. Redvers, Saskatchewan. Rockland, Saskatchewan. Red Deer, Alberta. Notice that all the towns start with R, so that's a hint. <laughs> <laughs> that's pushing dad joke material. No doubt. Say it again. Which prairie community is considered to be the home of Canadian 4-H? Mm. Rockland. I'll go with Red Deer. You should start copying me, Reg, because I'm on fire. Whatever I say, no, you should say what I say. Eventually, you're going to get one wrong. I think I got this one wrong. Okay, so 4-H in Canada started in Roland, Manitoba. Uh, the community was the site of the first meeting of the Boys and Girls Club, which later became 4-H in 1913. Roland even has a 4-H museum with memorabilia from throughout Canada and the United States. Uh, anybody here a 4-H kid? From back in the day? No? No, no. no. Our no. kids, we took our kids to 4-H. Like we had 4-H, yeah. but yeah. I, I myself was never in. 4-H was a good program going up. Um, but it's kind of evolved now to being more about cows and animals now than it was when I, we just had local guys would teach us. We took a small engines course. We took an outdoors course. We, uh, uh, I grew a little plot one year, like a three-acre plot, and that everybody of. in the class did. Uh, we grew wheat, okay. and then I took a uh, part of that plot, <laughs> and I made a uh, I made a sheath that was in the agribition. Um, yeah, it was just just a good Neat. thing to do. So, do you remember what the four H's stand for? Har- I do, I do, I do, I do. <laughs> oh, guys, yeah. I got this. Hands, Red, actually, yep, heart, yeah, something health. Something so that's health. that's what hands, I would say. Heart. And I'm semi confident it's head. Hands, heart, head, and health. Is that right? Hands, heart. I'm just kidding. So I'm saying with you. I would have got 75% here for sure. Yeah. So yeah, head. Yeah. Is it head? Yeah. I would have got a red. I would have got 100%. You would have. Again, yeah. You would have. Yeah. yeah. Call you. Yeah. So um, the 4-H pledge is like pledge my head to clearer thinking, my heart to greater loyalty, my hands to the largest service, my health for better living, for my club, community, and my country. Yeah. Nice. So, and the, the motto was learn to do by doing. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Do by doing. Tommy Schmidt was in 4-H, and I always thought that was cool. And he always went to Agribition and had sweet stuff because he, he was a real farm kid. I was a, I was a part farm kid. Yeah. One of the things I like about the 4-H program is the public speaking part of it. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, as all the kids hate it. Like, yeah. it's the worst thing ever. But it's a skill that you don't pick up anywhere else yep. that's useful Yes. No matter what kind of a job you pick Great up. experience. Was it a 4-H thing when you brought your kids to work and I sat down with them? That speaking uh, thing? Might have been. Do you remember I that? Remember. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. I think it was 4-H related. I think so. Yeah, that is a cool skill to get. And if 4-H... So there's what's weird to me. 4-H was always about animals to me. And then you're talking about doing small engine stuff mm-hmm. and planting crops. And you're talking about doing public speaking... I think like, I think I might have been a little off on what I actually thought 4-H was. I wasn't in 4-H. It really depends on your club and who was organizing it. And so, for someone that's a foreigner, how do you describe 4-H in one sentence? Um, Learn to do by doing. Yeah, yeah. it's really. it's an egg-based um, kids club, basically that will teach you different life skills and and give you projects to 
take on and learn how to do by actually doing the project. And you can get high school credit for it as well. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you pick your project, uh, you have to follow it through to completion and then do a report on it basically. And then you can get your four H or your high school credit for it as well as completing the four H course as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, projects can be anything from like animal stuff to quilting, to archery, to small engine, to any, and if, and if there is, um, like a project you want to do that doesn't already exist in 4-H, um, as long as you have a leader that put together a guideline and stuff that you can create one that doesn't exist already. So mm-hmm. it's, it's actually pretty neat. Mm-hmm. No, I was very thankful. And now that I'm an adult, very glad that I was a part of that. I actually went to 4-H camp one year. Mm. Um, I don't know. That, I don't recall if we did any 4-H stuff when we were there, but it was all 4-H kids. I believe it was. I believe it was at Diefenbaker, but I was like seven, eight, nine years. Mm. Well, and they do other like extracurricular types. Like they'll have a ski day. Yep. And they'll have like leadership conferences, and they'll do a curling thing, like yep. provincial curling, and so they do all kinds of fun stuff. So it's yeah. awesome. It's time for now. You know, it's the part of the program where we talk to people. Experts in their field, various varieties and various areas of farming. And today we're talking with Sean Geddes, the Vice President of Sales from Flamin. Talk a bit about bin monitoring and why that's why that's important. Oh, bin monitoring is a massive uh, concern. Uh, we've all heard the horror stories of people losing a bin. Um, just a basic 2406, 10,000 bushel bin now can hold, you know, upwards of $200,000 worth of canola. And you could have someone could have drove through a, a slough bottom and brought in a bunch of kosher or something and then you can have hot spots in the bin which is just like a virus in canola it'll it'll just you'll you'll lose it in no time so um bin monitoring is very important it's it's pennies on the bushel to have that live and get alerts uh to your phone um to control your fan remotely um to uh, make sure, even just give you an indicator that you got to turn that bin or, or, or pull a couple loads out. Um, and it's important to have that maintained. It's important to know how it works. And it will do, no, it's the best insurance policy on managing and holding grain that I know out there. What, what I like is it's good for a remote bin site. So you can have powered by battery or solar or whatever and you don't have to have it close to home so it can be out on a remote site you can look at it on your phone you don't have to drive out there especially in the winter you bet it's there's cellular based wi-fi based most of them are cellular based as wi-fi can be a little sketchy in different places and even across a yard um it's all it all communicates directly to your smart device there's uh, moisture curves and temperature curves based on the type of commodity that's in the bin, canola versus peas versus wheat. There's uh, all kinds of things you can do to use it as a management tool, um, even a theft deterrent. Uh, if someone starts activate, uh, accessing your bins, you're going to know because the sensors are going to start changing. Well, and back, to what, and back to what you said before about using the data of what's going on in your operation to make better management decisions. You don't have to, but if there's opportunity to insert different data and metrics, it gives you the ability 
to be able to manage it in a way that you couldn't if you didn't have those metrics. And the security, Mitch. Um, you can lose so much so fast uh, via heated grain and the security to know that you have a backup. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of great takeaways from this conversation. Thanks a lot, Sean. We're going to move on to the last segment of our show today, and that's an interview with our special guest. Uh, our guest today is Rocky. Uh, now, you're from Flamin, Alberta. Yes. All right. Yes, I am. But you don't originate from Alberta. No, nope, Saskatchewan farm boy. So let's talk about that. Where are you from originally? Uh, Radisson, Saskatchewan. How long have you been in Alberta for, though? I've been in Alberta for 29 years. What? took you to Alberta because I don't think the average I shouldn't say that there was a time where a lot of people from Radisson I think ended up in Alberta and slowly they come back to (laughs) Saskatchewan but uh so you're from Radisson tell us about how you ended up in Alberta well it's quite a story um Frank Flamin was flying around in his airplane and um and uh I was applying to companies and my brother Dave says you should apply this company called um Frank Flamin Sales Limited and I said, Frank Flamin Sales, who in the heck names a company after their own name? I'm not <laughs> a, I said, I'm not applying there. So my brother sent my resume in. So I was working in Maidstone for my brother as an electrician. And um, the next thing you know, uh, Frank decided to fly out in his airplane to meet me. So um, I'm quite a bit taller than my brother, so I decided to, I should wear a suit because I'm pretty young and all you really got is your looks. So how, you, how old are you at this time? Uh, 22. Okay, yeah, yeah. So next thing you know, I'm, I decide, well, I better wear a suit. So I'm wearing my brother's suit, except it's about three inches too short. <laughs> so um, so Frank lands in his airplane, and um, so I'm standing behind my Mustang car, trying to hide my pant legs, and he comes over and meets me. I shake his head. Next thing you know, he's kind of looking at my my dress pants. He's like, uh, so uh, what's going on here? And so I kind of told him, and I said, I like to dress up. So I... and. Um, for respect for him and um, next thing you know he's uh, he says well we spent about an hour together he goes I really like you so you should come to work in Leduc so we're in Leduc there in 1993 so I get up the next morning drive to Leduc so I leave about 4 in the morning get to Leduc about 10 to 8 so 10 to 8 in the morning the next thing you know I'm sitting there and the doors open at 8 o'clock so I go in and I'm sitting there I'm meeting Frank Flamin here I'm supposed to have a job and next thing you know, there's another guy sitting beside me. He's waiting for Frank, too. I didn't know that Frank slept sometimes at the store, so I learned that pretty quick. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the next thing you know, I Frank comes downstairs, and and um, he says, oh, both you guys come up to my office. So we both go up to his office, and he goes, well, there's two of you, and there's one job. <laughs> and uh, you, do you know who this guy is, or you've never seen him in your life? Never seen him in my life. So I, where's he from? What's his story? I don't know. I Still can't to remember. This day you don't know. Can't remember because all I know is, I looked over. I said, "Well, I can beat this guy, so I'm going to beat <laughs> this guy, and then I'll get the job." So this other guy lasted about two days, and then um, I started um, started flamming rentals. So that was my little baby. So I started doing marketing on that. And then um, next thing you know, we started it in November of 1993. That's when Flamin Rentals started. Oh, cool. And was that uh, like corporate rental equipment or was that the franchising side of the rentals, like the rental dealer side? It was a rental dealer side. So we didn't have rentals at any of our own stores. Um, So we actually set up 10 dealers in the course of uh, November 93 to April of 94. We set up 10 rental dealers and then we had, we own majority of the equipment. 
and um, and dealers rented it out, and we had a percentage they got and a percentage we got, and we did that for a year. And then the following year, we set up another 10 dealers, and um, some of them bought some equipment, so their percentage changed and back and forth. And really, we lost money in the first two years, but Frank Flamin always had this, that line, stick and stay and make it pay. So when you're young and you don't know anything, you don't think about making money. You're just out working. That's all you're doing. And yeah. uh, it was like clockwork. In May of 95, we actually did more rentals in the month of May than we did in the first two years. I just clicked all of a sudden like that wow. and took off. So, and hence now we have close to 100 locations for Flamin' Rentals. Is there anything that can attest to that big jump? Like, did you guys do something from a marketing standpoint, on the sales side? Or what was that attested to? I think the big thing is um, awareness. You know, people see Flamin' Rentals, they don't understand it. What is it? What do you rent? What do you know? And then as people started renting more and more, neighbors see it. Where do you get that disc from? And it just kind of took off from word of mouth. And now you think about how many customers that we have that are Flamin' Rental customers. Yep. Absolutely. And it's one of our rec- recognizable names now is Flamin' Rentals. So Absolutely. It's a big, big business for us. So what kind of equipment were you renting back then? Well, we had... We had discs, we had harrows, we had land rollers, rock pickers, stock trailer, a flat deck trailer. Um, yeah, that's about it. We didn't have lots, maybe 10, 12 items. Now we got, I don't know, 80. So there's quite a bit of difference. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, I'm going to go back a little bit um, growing up for you in Radisson. Um, what are some of your earliest memories that you have? Well, uh, apparently the power went quite a bit out in our house because I have a big family. So there's uh, five <laughs> boys and three girls yeah. in our family. I'm the youngest boy. And yeah. and I remember growing up and um, every day kind of getting beat up by your brothers. <laughs> and it's like my yeah. dad always says it takes two to tangle. That was um, that was a growing up thing there. But it was uh, it's amazing growing up in a big family. And you support each other and you work together and you become part of the community. So it uh, yeah. was a great way to grow up. Yeah. Absolutely. Growing up on the farm. Big farm, mixed farm, grain? Both. Yep. Yeah. Still today, my two brothers kind of farm. One brother's mainly farming now, so it's, uh, my dad comes and helps a little bit, so yeah, all pretty good, so. Is agriculture still a part of you? That's something that you'll always keep with? That It'll never go away. Yeah. It'll never go away. And you know, it's it's funny. Um, I thought I wanted to be a farmer, and my dad told me, so I took a year off of high school, and then and my dad was like, okay, well, there's two types of people in the world. There's people that give orders and people that take them. He goes, you're not a good listener. you got to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> so the, all those things stem back from my upbringing. Though, Absolutely. So. Hard work. Yeah. You know, take care up. of people. 100%. Yeah. 100%. How do you uh, instill that into the people that work with you now and as the organization grows and you bring in new people? Have you have you ever hired two people for the same job and then made them fight it out for a couple of days? <laughs> no, no, no. We don't do that. <laughs> that's, that's a Frank Flamman move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Frank has yeah. that one patent. But uh, so Frank Flamman gave the company away in August of 2017 to charity. So it's called the Frank J. Flamin Foundation. So yep. we have a board of directors for the foundation and we have a board of directors to run the company and then I run the company. And um, was instilled to me when Frank um, first gave the company away, he gave me two directives was to give as much money away for as long as you can. So that was to me, build a strong, safe company of mm-hmm. good people because we're yep. out to do good, yep. not to do harm, to do good. So um, the biggest thing to me is people's attitudes. If you have somebody that's willing to work and give it their best every day and are positive, that's the team people that we want to have working for yeah. us. So 
And you, you get a group of, of individuals like that that have the same uh, mantra or attitude, and pretty soon you have a pretty strong culture. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's our strong suit in our company, though, is, is just good people. Yeah, I get it. I get it. How has the business changed since you first started there um, when you were interviewing and where you are now? How, how have you seen the business progress and evolve over the course of time? Well, when I started at Flatman's, we we're in Leduc and there were 16 employees and I was the youngest employee at Flatman's. And that's all there was is 16 employees in Alberta. And just one store? Just One Leduc. store in Leduc. And really all we sold was aeration and bins and a five bale carrier from Trail Tech. Do you remember the employees back then? Or, all of them. All uh, of them. And are any of them still with us now? Yes. So Rick Club, he's, well, I think he started when Don Flamin started. So he's up there with Don Flamin. So he's still there. And Everald Olson, he started in 88. And then it would be me in 93. So When did Don Evans start? Don Evans started in 96. Okay. So shortly after. So yeah. he's been there for almost original too. Yeah. 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 So we got a lot of guys that have been there a long time. So. Les Pachinski started in 95, Dave Sunley in 96, Ken Bartlett in, in 99. And these guys all still work there. They're all, yep. a bunch of them are here today. Yeah. yeah. Cool. You know, that's, that's, I always say this though. I said, if we can keep people at Flamins for two years, they don't leave. So the first two years are always critical, but after two years, they fit into culture, good people working together. It's what or, it takes the or, first Or they years. don't. Or they don't. And yeah. I think, and, and I've noticed too, um, there are certain people that just don't fit in the way Flamin operates, and that doesn't make them bad, and it doesn't make Flamin good or bad either. But I've found um, in those two years, there's often times where people leave in a very amicable way that's just like, ah, this isn't for me. And it's often like, yeah, we know. Like, we could, we could <laughs> yeah. just tell. And, and then yeah. the, I, what I've also experienced, and more often than not, the people that do fit in, it's like they're home like they just found home and so i actually wouldn't have guessed that there's that many people that work in flamin alberta that are original because i see those guys all the time and i i guess you think back to the 90s it was a long time ago but yeah they're still all there that's super cool well not to mention the the philosophy with the frank flamin foundation is you know you're giving back to the community so everything that the employees are doing through a given year it doesn't go to line any ownership pockets it goes to charity it helps the community it helps the the common good and i mean that's something everyone can rally around can you talk a little bit about the frank j flamin foundation what it's all about when it started what kind of causes it supports okay well um so we started it in um january 1st of 2006 so that was the starting of the frank j flamin foundation and i took over the running the company on november 1st 2005. now me and frank worked pretty good together so we always made a rule that anything over a half a million dollars, we'd both have to agree on it. And it was pretty easy. We worked very, very well together. And we actually doubled the size of the company in one year. Then Frank decided to give a million dollars away. <laughs> and I went, oh my God. I said, work really hard to get this money and now you're giving a million dollars away. And he says, well, Rock, this is my money. I get to do what I want to do with my money. You get to do what you want to do with your money. And my, my thing is to make a difference in the world. And that's how the foundation started out. So then we mandated it that we give at least a million dollars away every single year, no matter what. And it goes to women, children, world suffering. So really five pillars, clean drinking water, food, safety, shelter, and basic education. So that's our focus. Now, when COVID happened over the last few years, we concentrate a lot more in Canada than third world countries. And now we're about 50-50. Awesome. So if I recall... 
the and I'm assuming it's on the the back of the Frank J. Flamin Foundation, but there's a lot of Flamin staff and family members of the Flamin staff that get to go around the world or have been around the world in third world countries. Is that true or is that yes. accurate? No, that's very true. So we want buy-in from everyone to understand that they work for a company that's charity. So we started to do a trip every single year and we take 12 to 14 employees and it's, they don't take holidays. This is them working. They go down and we go to Guatemala or Honduras and we work for a week. So we go down for 10 days, so one day traveling there, one day traveling back, then you work for a week, and then we have a day of excursions just at the very end to say, hey, thank you very much, and get to show you the countryside. And I tell you, every single time employees come back from one of these trips, they're changed, knowing that what our company does, and we're making a difference out there. And that's massive. And employees still talk about today all the trips they went on to. And it's quite amazing. So you think about how much money we've donated since 2006 and i think this year we just passed 23 million dollars wow that's unreal that's amazing wow pretty cool yeah and that's so that's like when you look at the model people together you know doing what's right making a difference that making a difference part is maybe not something that all the employees see especially when you're on the saskatchewan side that yeah we'll make a difference like uh, at a customer's place or, you know, um, somebody who comes in has an issue, we help resolve it, that sort of thing. But making a difference in a different country, different continent, that's something that maybe most employees aren't really aware of. Yeah, people can grasp. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, can you share maybe a couple of uh, like personal stories when you've gone abroad and, and done the work, like who you've done it for and the impact that you've made? Well, the on the trip I went on, I'll tell you, talk about the trip I went to. I went to um, Peru, and uh, we went to uh, Cusco, Peru, so it's north Lima, about an hour and a half on plane, and when we first got there, you're higher elevations, and um, so breathing's a little bit hard, so they said, don't go running right away, so the next morning I got up, went for a run, I ran for 30 seconds, and I bent over, had trouble breathing, but it's really good for training, I tell you, to go there. <laughs> but it was, it was very unique, so um, what we had is a bus, and we went to, um, to a little village, and there was a place where there was a, a, a girl's shelter, and it was 92 girls that were abandoned, abused, and, and they were taken care of there. So we decided that we were gonna work on this place. This is what was set up to the charity we went through. It was called Vanishing Cultures. And uh, every day, so you get there in the morning and you meet everybody and then you start working on things and repairing walls to building eavesdrops, which is you think you'd buy an eavesdrop somewhere, but they don't have eavesdrops, so you'd have to make eavesdrops. And, and um, and, you know, help them get some food. And the, and the most amazing thing is, so they had rice and there was mouse, mouse turds in the, in the rice. And I was like, holy crap, we got to throw this out. They wouldn't throw it out. They just took the turds out. I said, we can buy you new rice. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we work all day. Then people would drop people off at the hotel at five o'clock and me and a couple other gentlemen that were on the trip, we would go and buy all the supplies that night. And I still remember going to see this one lady and she must have been 70 years old and she's selling uh, bricks. And she wanted, I think it was $90, whatever the approved money is, I can't remember, but it was $90, which was like 90 cents to us. And uh, 
And myself is, I always got to see what kind of deal I can get. So I started at 90 cents <laughs> and I got her down to 20 cents uh, a brick. But then I paid her 90 cents a brick and she couldn't understand why I was paying her 90 cents a brick. I just wanted to see how cheap I could get it. But I wanted, And she yeah. actually slept there where she sold her bricks and stuff like that. And that, that story was really moving for me and she couldn't quite understand why I wouldn't pay 20 cents, but I paid the 90 cents. And I just look at how people have it so hard down there compared to what we have. We're so fortunate to live in a country where we have every different temperature in the world and we can adapt to it. And down there, education is, is a hard part because now kids have to, to work to help the household. And um, the, the most unique thing I remember about this trip was after we worked for seven days on this um, project for them. Um, so then that night they decide that they want to treat us good. So um, they got some beer for us and then guinea pig is a delicacy in Peru. I did not know that. <laughs> I thought they were a pet, yeah. but they're a delicacy. <laughs> so next thing you know, they come out with a guinea pig and you can see the eyeballs and the skulls and the claws and everything. And it's all out laying on the plate and you're looking at it and they go, does it look good? And then you're like, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so then they go into the kitchen. You can hear them cutting it and bones, bones breaking. And what do they put on the, my plate? The head. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell you what. So I ate that head, and they use the same spices on everything. So we, we were there for a few more days afterwards, and we went to Machu Picchu and did a little bit of fun stuff. And I tell you, everything had the same kind of spice on it. So I lost probably 15 pounds in two days after eating that guinea pig's head. And I tell you, that was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. And I'm always thinking of that movie, that show Fear Factor. Yeah. They should put that on there. Nobody's eating that. That's, that's impossible. But the difference we made down there in that trip, I went on, and that's my story, is it was unbelievable. And I tell you, at the end of the trip, those 92 girls, we got there in the morning, you would hug every one of them, and you'd hug every one of them when you left. And they were just so happy. And to make a difference in somebody's life like that, that's my most memorable trip I've ever went on in my entire life, my favorite trip. That's crazy. So that's pretty amazing. Awesome. Crazy. Um, what What are some of the stories you have of uh, Frank J. Flamin? Um, I, I, I mean, I've, I've heard, I've never had a chance to meet him. Um, I've heard a lot of different eclectic stories. What's What's the top of the heap in your memory bank? Um, me and Frank, uh, we traveled lots together. Um, kind of took me under his wing, which was really weird. So when other people ran the company, he always told them that I worked for him directly. So that was always weird because other people would be the boss, but I worked for Frank. So Frank told me a lot of stories and we did a lot of things. Um, I remember flying in Chicago O'Hara airport with Frank when it's Mooney 201. In his and, plane. In his plane. And he's <laughs> flying. And that's when I decided I got to get my pilot's license. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we get behind a jet. And now there's another jet right behind us. They just land every 30 seconds, and, and that's one of the busiest airports in the world. And I'm telling you, so here we are in this little tiny Mooney 201 just landing right in O'Hara, and that was quite interesting. So I learned about traveling with Frank Flapp. So we went and stayed at, I can't remember what hotel we stayed at, and they didn't have a room, so they kind of gave us the meeting room, put two cots in it. And so we stayed there for four days for a trade show. After that, we went to Logan, Utah, so this was quite unique. So flew into Salt Lake City, go to Logan, Utah. So we're driving the car, and Frank goes, you're, you're speeding too fast. And I go, Frank, I'm not speeding. I'm just driving the same speed as everybody else. Why are you speeding? So I pull over to the side of the road, open my book in the back, grab a piece of paper, and I put it over the dash. <laughs> he goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I don't know how fast I'm going, and you don't know how fast I'm going, so we're going to be fine. We're just going to stay with the traffic. <laughs> so we get to Logan, Utah. It's quite dark at night, and... Uh, 
the banks there look like hotels. So I'm going to tell you this story. So next thing you know, me and Frank get their bags out and we go park at this hotel and our bags are black. So we're walking up the door. Next thing you know, this police officer drives on the sidewalk, gun out, drawn and goes, raise your hands. So he's like, what the heck? So I got my hands raised. Frank doesn't have his raised. So I said, Frank, this guy's going to shoot us. Raise your hands. The guy goes, what are you guys doing? I said, well, we're just trying to check into a hotel. It wasn't a hotel. It was Wells Fargo Bank. <laughs> <laughs> so quite a unique story. So um, so then we ended up in Logan, Utah. And me and Frank always worked good together. So um, we were just selling treadmills at that time. And this is 1998. And he says, well, we got to get into these ellipticals. That's a new thing. So we went down to... Um, in Logan, Utah, that's there. They make pro form ellipticals, and we bought the 595 and the 695, and um, they're normally selling around a thousand bucks. And this part is not like business today, but um, at that time, they wanted to sell them to us for for four hundred dollars US. By the time we were done, we were buying them for one hundred fifty dollars US. So we knew. By the it. time you were done, like negotiating Shane, with him, yeah. yes, we oh, bought yeah. one hundred fifty bucks, and we bought I think eight hundred ellipticals which nobody's ever really seen elliptical and that started out that so frank frank's lines are always you know you got to be first to get in and and no you got to be the first to get in and then you got to be not the last one to get out so you want to get out before other people get out frank taught me so much in business and the biggest thing that he taught me is taking care of people says rocky i tell you what never take care of anybody know what nobody's going to take care of you but you take care of people they will take care of you and that's been driven into me from Frank Flamman. Yep. Hands down. Like he's uh, probably one of the most amazing men I've ever met. Eccentric. Eccentric <laughs> like crazy. He's a prankster. He would play pranks on you if he could. It didn't matter. One Christmas party. That's what Frank Flamman does. So we have a Christmas party. And next thing you know, somebody says there's somebody in the, in the boot room in there that's not an employee. So I go in there and the guy's telling me to get out. Like, and it's like, you can't be here. I don't know who you are thinking nothing of this and frank goes oh don't worry about that guy don't worry about yeah. that guy so i'm up on the stage talking to all the staff next thing you know this guy comes out and he starts saying why don't you shut up and i'm like holy smoker so i'm sitting on a stage in front of 150 employees this guy comes up and now he's on the stage and i'm thinking well this is not cool like this guy we're kind of staring eye to eye so he's a pretty big guy and and i'm like this is not cool but then i find out what frank did, bought me for christmas was uh a boxing match with a Canadian champion. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I trained for two months really hard. And then um, we had this event in Regina and we charged employees 10 bucks to come. And we had 150 employees come and we said we'd match it for charity. So we raised $1,500 there and plus the company gave $1,500 and I had to box this guy for three rounds for three minutes. And I tell you what, I got punched 90 times in the head, <laughs> 90 times. I never punched the guy once. <laughs> I couldn't hit him. And it was like unbelievable. I'm like, how in the heck do I get suckered into this? And I think Frank Flamman, he's the one who did it. Yeah. All so, for charity, Rock. All for charity, all for charity. So like Frank was always a prankster and played games and stuff like that and uh, treated the staff excellent. Mm. And you know what? And I think that's the roots of our business, you know, and um, and the difference that Frank personally made in the world, and then by giving the whole company to charity, mm -hmm. I've never heard of somebody doing that before. So that's very yeah. impressive. It's very rare. Have you ever been to the Orient with Frank? Um, yeah, yeah. I've been to Taiwan with Frank and China with Frank. Quite eccentric, yeah. yeah. And I tell you, the things that we used to do, we fly places and you uh, don't book a hotel. 
<laughs> so we're in, in China, you have to book a hotel, but in Taiwan, you don't. So you fly there, and then you find a hotel where you're going to stay, and then you play it all by ear. And I tell you, traveling with Frank has always been interested because you learn so much. And he's very worldly, speaks three different languages, and just a treat to travel with. It's always entertaining, always. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So that prepared you for anything. So that was pretty cool. (laughs) So you were talking about, um, you were talking about Frank really um, intentionally caring for people. Can you share how that or if that uh, translates into the culture of Flamin or like what, from a foundational standpoint, what does that do for the company or the foundation that you work in now? Like, does that still live in there? Oh, absolutely, 100%. You know, our goal is to take care of people and take care of our own people too, because sometimes we forget about the people right in front of us. So taking care of our employees is number one, because we always say they're the most important people, and they always we always ask our employees, who's the most important person? And they'll come up and say, the customer. And I'll say, no, it's you. And Frank's always instilled, if you can give your employees 110%, they can give their customers 110%, but you can only give your employees 20%, what are they giving the customers? So that's instilled in us so much that way. And then with the watching Frank with different charities and how they come in and sit down and talk to him and spend a few hours with Frank, and next thing you know, he give them $10,000. And Frank always did the grassroots charities, not the big charities, all the ones that are fighting for every dollar they got to that didn't have any administration expenses and volunteered their time to make a difference. And those are the ones that hit home to them. Improve your local community. Yes. You see it every day. Absolutely. So it sounds like even prior to the foundation, Frank was always a philanthropist. He was always giving stuff to people in need. Yes. He always donated a lot of money to MCC, Amnesty International, Mother Teresa. He always donated to those charities. And then once we got bigger, we did a lot more. And that's that's key. We still have probably 60 charities that we have done since 2006, and new ones get added on every year. But there's 60 charities that stay with us every single year, hmm. and MCC is one of them. Very cool. And when the, when the Ukrainian crisis happened, uh, we donated $100,000 to MCC to help the refugees in Poland. Oh, very cool. So uh, switching gears from uh, Rocky within Flamins to Rocky as a person, uh, what are you passionate about? What what gets your juices flowing? Well, um, a lot of people think it's just work, and it, work is my hobby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, other things than work, though, I'm um, skiing, big avid skier. I like skiing, mm-hmm. um, like being at the cabin, doing lots of outside stuff, So and uh, like going home back to the farm and helping. So those are kind of my things to do but I'm a people's person I always have to be around people I can't be alone and I think that's from being from a big family but Mm -hmm. I literally can't be alone I have to be with people all the time I was gonna say this is random maybe a little bit more back to the Frank side but is there a story about you sleeping on the shop floor for an extended period of time yeah so when I first started at Flamins um I was staying at my parents' friend's place on the north side of Edmonton and it took me half an hour to drive to Leduc every morning. So Frank says, well, why don't you stay here? And I thought, well, if I can stay here, it'd be great because there's a kitchen and there's a bathroom and there's a shower. So I bought a sleeping bag and a pillow and cleaned one of the offices upstairs and slept on a rug that was on a cement floor for three months. 
<laughs> and Frank kind of stayed there at the store and slept in his office, so we got to know each other very, very yeah, well. Roommates. <laughs> roommates. So it's um, roommates and landlords. Yeah, that's really. right. Yeah. So we got we got to spend a lot of time together right off the beginning, and I'm pretty open guy, and so is Frank. So yeah. uh, we got to spend a lot of time together where that made the difference between me and him because we yeah. understood each other and. And Frank, we didn't realize this two years later, Frank comes from a family of eight kids, two, five boys, three girls. So that's oh, wow. very unique. And uh, we didn't know that till about five years ago. So, <laughs> And he's the youngest boy too. So I, I was going to say, there's a trend today in uh, all the people we've talked about. I was the youngest. Phil's the youngest. You're the youngest. Frank's the youngest. So yeah. for what it's worth, like I think there's some uh, magic about maybe the youngest like is the best. It's it, it can be debated. It's, yes. it's something, yeah. right? It's I, something. Don't, I don't think the rest of the brothers and sisters will agree with yeah, that. Yeah, probably not. And yours no, either. And I, I side with them. I side with yeah. them. Yep. What are uh, what are some of your personal goals that you have yet to accomplish that you're really aiming towards? Um, the biggest thing is to, to have a strong, safe company yep. that can last forever. That's what Frank wanted. He wanted a company to give as much money to charity for as long as he possibly can. So my goal would be to make sure this company will run forever. Awesome. And that's that's one of my, that's my biggest goal. You know, um, my personal life, I got lots of goals there too with family and friends and yeah. things I like to do and do a little bit of traveling, but uh, that will come. What an uh, amazing story to tell your staff as you, whether you onboard them or the ones that have been there for a, you know, a number of years to say, we want this company to last forever and continue to give uh, charity away to well, people. The biggest thing I find about our company is it's a place that you can start and I don't care whether you work in the front or in the yard or in sales or in management or accounting or in shipping, you can start there and you can retire there. Mm -hmm. And that is key. And yep. people want to come to a great company. And our goal is to make it a company that where people are fighting to come work for us. And that all starts with attitude yep. and being a great company and making a difference. Thank you for listening to Flamin' Connect. For Mitch Flamin' and Regan Kuntz, I'm Trevor Grindy. Join us next time. Talk to you soon.